Let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and turn to Obadiah this morning. Obadiah, and we'll be looking this morning at the last few verses of this particular chapter, verses 18 through 21. Obadiah, verses 18 through 21. I do want to be sure uh, that it's always my intention on these, during these Bible studies to give us some time at the end for questions. So I'm going to do that intentionally this morning. And then also going forward to ensure that we still get this uh, opportunity to do that. Um, we're going to just make a slight adjustment to our Sunday worship service from beginning at 11 to 11.15 because I'm really excited to also have that 30-minute time of fellowship again in between services. So just a slight adjustment. So our morning worship service started at 11.15. Uh, we're going to try to stop at 10.45 here this morning, give us about a half an hour of fellowship. Uh, coffee and things will be available. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to have that time back. And uh, so I hope we, hopefully we can enjoy that together. Obadiah, verses 18 through 21. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is Shepherd, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Our subject for this study this morning is found at the end of verse 18, for the Lord hath spoken it, for the Lord hath spoken it. Wherever the Lord speaks, we have assurance that it will come to pass, it will come to fruition. And as we have worked our way through this study, uh, these 21 verses, uh, we've been able to outline them pretty distinctly as to uh, what's happening in each one of the verses and the overall intention and the overall prophecy that Obadiah was speaking of. Of course, we, we learned back in verses 1 through 9 that Obadiah uh, was declaring God's judgment upon Edom due to their proud thinking of themselves. They believed themselves to be secure. They believed themselves to be invincible. And Edom became the object of God's determined wrath. It's important that we understand God's determined wrath and ultimately that Edom must be destroyed. Verses 10 through 14, we learned that we see God's justice on display and how just he is in his judgment. Uh, in other words, God is always just in his judgment. Edom was destroyed because of its own attitude, because of its own pride, and because of its treatment, its cruel treatment towards God's people Israel. Verses 15 and 16, we saw the result of God's judgment due to Edom's pride. The Edomites, we ultimately know, if we go fast forward through history a bit, the Edomites were ultimately crushed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, and later they were crushed even further by Cyrus. And finally, Edom, if you study this through history, uh, it was ultimately the Maccabees 
who ultimately delivered the final blow to the Edomites, to where they are no longer even a nation any longer. So by the time in biblical history that the Romans actually conquered Jerusalem, Edom was nothing more than a name in history. People knew that there was an Edom, but there was no Edom to go to. There was no nation uh, left. Edom was nothing more than a page in a history book. But then in these verses, these final verses, and especially where it started back in verse 17, we see that Obadiah here, the prophet of God, speaks to the certainty to the house of Esau. We see this in verse number 18. And we see that he speaks of a sure and certain salvation that is going to come to the house of Jacob. So you have on two hands here, you have the house of Esau, which was going to receive the full judgment of God. And on the other hand, you see the house of Israel that was going to receive the salvation or more specifically the house of Jacob. Often when you reach an end of a book, you begin to ask yourself the questions, what is the message for us? What are we supposed to take from this? Well, certainly we should understand and take the reality that God's message is God's message. Uh, We don't ultimately, first and foremost, look for how does this apply to me? We don't look first and foremost that what does this mean to me in 2021? Ultimately, we look to see what God's purposes are. Why did God give us Obadiah? Why is it left in the, the, the canon of Scripture? Uh, all of the books of the Bible are there for a purpose. They're all for a reason. And just like every other book, Old Testament and New, all of these books point to a Messiah. They point to a Christ who would come. So Obadiah was not just giving some kind of a vision about a destruction of a people sorely just because they had disappointed God, as some modern uh, translations try to say. What is the message? Well, the message is found in the meaning of the prophecy. So it's the Spirit of God that has to teach us exactly why did God give us this prophecy? Well, we get a couple of hints when we look at some other scriptures. So let's compare scripture with scripture this morning. Go back to Genesis 3.15. And this is the very start of God's revelation of this Messiah that would come. Uh, Genesis 3 is the first real mention of the gospel. It's the first real mention of a Savior. It's the first mention of something that's going to happen in this world that is setting off in motion what's going to happen going forward. Genesis 3.15 says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We know that God announced this as part of the curse. But what is happening here is there is a reminder here about enmity or a division. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Find Malachi chapter 1, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, and look with me, begin at verse number 1, and we'll read down through verse number 5. Malachi, the prophet here, writes about God's great love for Israel. And it's in the first five verses we're going to focus our attention. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I, have, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness." 
Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Make note of that. The people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. We're seeing a pattern here that this this enmity that would come between nations, this enmity that would come between people, God's love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. The Bible is extremely clear that there is running through the Bible a line that shows this line of, of division between Jacob and Esau. And then probably the most familiar that makes reference to Edom and Esau and Jacob is Romans chapter number 9. Uh, the most avoided chapter in the book of Romans by many because of the hard sayings, but very clear sayings as to God's purposes. This section specifically deals with God's mercy, how God's mercy is shown according to his will. God's mercy is shown according to his will, not man's will. Let's begin in verse number 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Now remember, we learned that Edom is a reference to the whole house of of Esau. When you see Edom, you are seeing the direct line of Esau. Israel is a reference to the whole house of Jacob. Jacob, of course, was the younger brother, the one who was the object of God's everlasting love. He's also the recipient of God's mercy and God's grace. Now, what is Obadiah's message? Obadiah seems to be talking about something that's related to these three passages, is related to this idea of God loving Jacob and yet hating Esau. Well, here's what we need to understand. We do understand that whatever God has spoken, it is in fact, it will be fulfilled. Whatever God has said will come to pass. Genesis 3.15 shows us that through the seed of the serpent, hatred comes, persecution comes, and there's a bruising of the heel of the woman's seed. Of course, the seed of the woman is a picture of Christ and his body, the church of God, which is a specific reference to God's elect. Ultimately, the serpent's head and his seed will be crushed. Okay, So all the way back in Genesis 3.15, we see a determined wrath of God that must come. Edom is the direct recipient of that initial crushing. Okay? This is not just something by chance. It's not something random. This is the purposes of God being carried out. So what we want to see this morning is really some of the prophecies 
of Obadiah and what it teaches us about God's prophecies and his promises. Number one, the purposes of God are never hindered and they're never thwarted and they're never frustrated. God's purposes are never hindered, thwarted, or frustrated, nor can they be. There's this, there's this thinking in the world today that God's purposes can be hindered or God's plan can be derailed. Obadiah's prophecies are teaching us that God cannot, his purposes will not be hindered. Just as he said, he has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He hardeneth who he will harden. These prophecies cannot be hindered. Before they were ever born, those passages we read teach us that God himself declared that Esau must serve Jacob. Okay, this wasn't a, they're going to be given an option and it's going to work out that Jacob is ultimately going to be the recipient of this. God determined before they were ever born. That's what Romans 9 was about. There was nothing in Jacob and Esau that led to the decision as to who was going to receive the birthright. Now we say, well, wait a minute, didn't, he, didn't Esau sell his birthright for, for a, a pottage, a soup? Didn't he do that? Yes, but that was part of the determined counsel of God. That was part of the determined purposes of God. The elder must serve the younger. We also see that same type of must in the Bible where Moses declared that Ham must serve Shem and Japheth. These were not random events. These were declarations made by God that this must take place. God's word regarding Jacob, God's word regarding Esau, is simply a declaration of God's purpose. What does that do for us today? That assures us that God's purposes will always be accomplished, and it gives us comfort today to know that those who are his chosen and redeemed sinners that there's nothing in this world that can do us enough harm to take away the love of God from us. This gives us great hope today as believers because we see that God's promises always come to pass. We also know that the scripture teaches us that those who oppose God's people, those who oppose God's purposes and plans, ultimately will, fight, will face judgment. So today, I can take comfort in knowing that even though I may not understand the purposes of God today, even though I may not understand the wicked and the evil that's allowed to seemingly, and it's not, run rampant in the world today, I do know that God's purposes that began all the way back before time ever began cannot be hindered. There's no leader, no ruler on this planet that can thwart God's purposes and God's plan. Great comfort in knowing that. Number two, we see that the Edomites and their history that leads all the way back to the enmity of the seed of the serpent toward the seed of the woman will never cease as long as there's time. There will always be enmity between the seed of God and the seed of Satan. There will always be conflict and opposition until the end of time. The enmity of Edom towards Israel, oftentimes people, especially talk about the Middle East, people try to define a time. What's the source of the conflict in the Middle East? The source of conflict in the Middle East, that enmity of Esau against his brother Jacob began long before Obadiah ever showed up. That enmity began in the womb. That enmity began and it was manifested on their birth, but the enmity began in the womb. Again, the 
Bible deniers today would say, well, that just seems like an impossibility. Yet the Bible's what tells us that the enmity that Esau had towards his brother Jacob started in the womb. Not when they were born and growing up as small children, like siblings do. This started before they were ever born. It's the same kind of enmity that Cain had for Abel. It's the same enmity that Babylon has against Israel. It's the same kind of hatred and enmity that Herod had against Jesus, the Son of God. It's the same enmity that the Judaizers or the Pharisees had against Paul. And folks, it's the same enmity that we see today against the kingdom of God. Nothing that happens in this world should shock you. It's just the fulfillment of God's declared purposes. This is never an enmity or a hatred that stops. Often people say, well, there's been times in church history where there was relatively pe- relative peace in the church. There's never been church towards Jesus Christ and his kingdom ever. It may not be manifesting itself the same way, but it has never been peace. The good old days do not exist. From the very beginning of time, there was hatred, there was enmity. So truly, what is enmity? Enmity is not just a strong dislike. It's a vile hatred. It's a deep-seated hatred for the people of God. Now, who are those people who often demonstrate enmity? They are people who presume on their own pride. They are people who presume that I can do my own thing. I don't need God. It's people that are truly against being saved by free grace alone. It's the people who truly proudly presume that I can be saved by my own good works, that I'm good enough to earn my own righteousness. Folks, that, that teaching that I can, I can secure my own righteousness is a, direct, it's a direct opposition or an assault on the cross. If I say I can create my own righteousness, I'm assaulting the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not a light matter. We simply say, well, what's really the difference between being saved by grace and being saved by my own works? They're not even close. There's no, there's no, even, there's no overlap in them. I either believe I'm saved by grace alone or I believe I'm saved by my own works alone. They don't both coexist. And oftentimes we look at the outward haters of the gospel. And Edom, of course, was part of the destruction of Israel or the attempt to destroy Israel. Number three that we learned from Obadiah's prophecy. We learn that they will, those who oppose and attempt to destroy the things of God, will perish under the wrath of God. But pride deceives us and deceives them into believing, I will never suffer God's wrath. Edom, as we've studied, never believed that they were actually under the hand of God's wrath. They actually thought Israel was the one that was wrong because remember, God was chastening them. But here's the reality. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We deceive ourselves when we be- believe the own pride of our heart. Remember back in verses 3 and 4 of Obadiah. Here's what he said. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? 
Remember, Edom and its pride said, who's going to bring us down, we that live in this rock city that is fortified? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. The Lord has spoken it. He said, I will bring Edom down. Edom is a representation by way of an application here of all those who believe, like Esau, despise Christ and presume that they can go it alone. Folks, do you know how many, do you know how many thousands, if not millions of people there are in this world who believe that they can go it alone? They actually say, I don't need your Christ. I don't need your God. They are no different than the pride-filled hearts of the Edomites. To say, I don't need Christ, it's the epitome of pride to say, I can go it alone. I can get to God on my own goodness. I can do enough good that outweighs my bad, and I can get to God's throne. That's the epitome of pride. Edom believed they could hide themselves. They thought our city is impenetrable. Nobody can get us. Nobody can get to where we are. They were probably thought their own morality was high enough. There are people today that say, I'm a very moral person, and they're trusting their own morality, thinking that's going to get them to God. Your morality is not going to get you to God. Your morality is not going to get you to heaven. No matter how high your moral values are, you can call them Christian values. Your Christian values are not going to get you to heaven. They're not going to get you salvation in Christ. What was Esau and Edom ultimately saying? I'm secure. Who's going to bring me down? Ultimately, we see pride. Fourth, let's remember what Obadiah shows us. He reminds us how far evil truly reaches. As wicked and evil as you think the world is, it's worse. It's actually worse. We only get a glimpse of just how sinful people truly are. Remember, there is a restraint occurring in this world because of the Holy Spirit. The actions of men in some extent, now think about this, are being restrained by the Spirit. Imagine if man's deceptions and man's pride was not somewhat restrained. That's why even we believe in the idea of total depravity, meaning we are totally depraved from head to toe, but we're not as bad as we possibly could be because of the restraining hand of God. And yet, Edom, the whole nation, followed, their, followed the example of their father, Esau. Edom was just a reflection. You've heard the cliche, like father, like son. It's actually a perfect picture of the influence of a father. Now, we understand that today, that yes, not every situation arises that way. But do you know it's often very easy to spot a member of someone else's family by certain characteristics? They have the characteristics of their father. Mother as well. But father is, is ultimately there too. But the whole nation of Edom followed the example of Esau. Nobody's ever saved, by, saved or lost by the example of others. How many people are there in the world today? Maybe again, millions of people that think, I'm secure in Christ because my dad was. I'm secure in Christ because my parents took me to church. I'm secure in Christ because I know a thing or two about the church. I know a thing or two about God. 
But you know how many multitudes of people have died in their sin believing that the example of others is all they had to follow? Even moral fathers? Folks, it's not enough to just be a moral father. It's not enough just to be a moral mother. It's not, it's not enough just to simply be a little bit better than the people around you. Your children, your grandchildren need the righteousness of Christ. And if you had a bad example as a father, then you need to follow the own example, follow the proper example of who Jesus Christ is. It's an amazing thing to think about. We talk about influence all the time. It's frightening to me that you can actually have a career now as an influencer. Absolute foolishness. Because the things that they're influencing have no value whatsoever. Our influence ought to be the influence of Christ upon others. Number five, Obadiah, we see in in our, our... letter here went to great lengths to show us that all who suffer the wrath and judgment of God die under a just judgment because of their own sins. Don't make the mistake of simply saying, well, God determined to destroy them. Man still chooses to reject God or to receive him. Man is held responsible for what he does with Christ. God is sovereign. How many times have we heard this, church? God is sovereign, but man is responsible. You cannot blame your hatred of God on him. Because the invitation is very simple. If you want to be saved, run to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, believe on him totally for your righteousness for the removal of your sins, and he will never, ever, ever cast anyone away who desires him. Man is held responsible. We cannot state it strongly enough that everything that happens in this world is being done according and exactly to God's purpose. The whole world is ruled of and disposed of according to God's everlasting love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. Someone might say, how does God's purpose, how is, how is this world ruled? What I just said. God's love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. God's purposes play out in that statement. That's why the people that avoid Romans 9 are avoiding really the entire purposes of God. That's also why Romans 9 is one of the most disputed chapters in all the Bible is because of the ramifications of what it means. People can't get their minds around, our small finite minds around. How could it say, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? And people say that can't be the God of the Bible. But it's all over the Scripture. It's what Obadiah was talking about. The book of Obadiah doesn't exist if God doesn't love Jacob and hate Esau. That's the whole point of the book. Again, these might be things that are we struggle with. But again, in Romans 9, verses 11 through 24, Paul goes on to write about vessels of mercy. And he gives the illustration that vessels of mercy will never be vessels of wrath. And vessels of wrath are vessels of wrath and they'll never be vessels of mercy. In other words, a vessel of mercy never becomes the subject of God's wrath. And a vessel of wrath never becomes a vessel of mercy. Again, the sovereignty of God. But understand something. 
Vessels of mercy are being prepared by grace for glory. And don't miss this, vessels of wrath fit themselves for their own destruction. See, men and women go away from God eternally because of their own willful rebellion and their own unbelief. Stiff-necked, obstinate, hard-heartedness is not to be blamed on God, but to be blamed on the rejecter. Again, these are tough truths. Esau despised God. Esau despised Christ. Edom perished for the very same reason that every single person who steps out into eternity apart from God today because of their hatred of God and their hatred of God's people. Now, with all that background being said, let's come quickly to these verses because a lot of these verses are summaries of what we just mentioned. You see in verse 18 the mention of the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, the house of Esau for stubble. They shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall be not be any remaining of the house of Esau. So what we learn here, we learn a couple of things. That Jacob, the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph were being put to the purifying fire. In other words, they were not innocent in their response to God. We established that last week and the week before that. Okay, But notice it just says they shall be a fire. That's a reference to the purging flame of God's chastisement, God's correcting hand. But notice what he says about the house of Esau. There shall not be any remaining. That's a far cry different difference between none remaining and a fire being kindled. The house of Esau would be completely destroyed to where there would be nothing left. The house of Jacob and the house of Joseph would experience fire, but it would not be a destructive fire that ultimately removes any remembrance of them or any trace of them. So what is verses 17 through 21 really about? Again, we see the hatred of Esau and the love of Jacob. It's clear. Okay, if somebody talks to you about Romans 9, point them back to Obadiah and have them explain to you what the purpose of Obadiah is if they're going to question the purpose of Romans 9. Because it all goes together. What's happening when Paul spoke of it in Romans 9 has everything to do with what Obadiah was professing and what he was prophetically giving. So again, look at, look, upon, look at verse 17 again. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. That's verse 17, right before the verse we just read. So before God says there'll be fire, remember this. There will be deliverance, there will be holiness, and there will be a repossession of possessions. In other words, God was not done with Israel or God's people. Edom is gone. The Edomites, in the truest sense of the Edomites, are gone. Are there descendants of Esau today? Absolutely. But the Edomites, as they were known as Edomites, they're gone. So what is God telling us about this? When we see this, we see this declaration. This declaration that verses 18 or verses 19 and 20 give us specifics. And we're not going to go into great detail with this. If you'd like to study this on your own, I'd encourage you to do so. But notice the very first phrase of verse 19. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. That they of the south is a reference 
to one of the two houses of Israel. They will possess the Mount of Esau. That is the repossession. In other words, Israel was going to gain back some of what it lost at the hands of the Edomites. It gives us the plain of the Philistines, the fields of Ephraim, the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. It gives us specific locations that the people of God would repossess or take back. Remember, they lost almost everything. But God's hand came in, of course, and now they're getting those things back. But it's interesting that when we get to verse 20, again, the captivity of this host of Israel, the children of Israel, shall possess that of the Canaanites. So we see Israel now, the house of Jacob, coming together again, possessing again those possessions they lost. They will now have deliverance. They will now have holiness. But then, verse 21, the climax of this book is really Obadiah looking through the pages of time well beyond just Israel repossessing what they had lost. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Obadiah, by the spirit of prophecy, now looks beyond this range of time he's been dealing with for the first 20 verses. And he looks, day, he looks down to the time, that last great day, when Christ ultimately comes. Folks, I want you to know something this morning. When Christ comes, it is going to be visible. And it's going to be visible to everyone. Is going to, every eye shall see him. This idea that Christ is going to somehow secretly come and a bunch of us are just going to disappear and the world's going to... No, listen. When He comes again, the world is going to see Him and they're going to know it and they're going to know that Christ has come. Now again, not every church believes what I just said in that order, in that manner. But biblically speaking, that's what I believe the Bible teaches, that we're not looking for some secret rapturing away. We're looking for Christ's return and then when he comes again, he's going to set everything in order. Now again, we can argue about the end times, about what it might look like. But what I want you to know, what Obadiah is pointing to, is not for us to get into an eschatological argument about what's the order. He's not telling us, are we pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Are we post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial? What are we? That's not what he's saying. He's pointing to a time when Christ will establish by His glory. His glory will be unmistakable. You're not going to have to tell people this is the glory of Jesus Christ. We as believers are not going to have to be told, hey, do you see that glory? Do you know who that glory is? That glory is Christ. Every eye will see Him and every believer is going to know Jesus Christ has come to set things right. In that day when Christ comes, holiness shall be seen everywhere. You and I have no idea what holiness everywhere looks like. Because we are bombarded daily with everything that is anti-Christ. That's why instead of just looking for the appearance of one anti-Christ, understand something. From the beginning of time, there has been a spirit of anti-Christ. And that's why John talks about test every spirit. Anti-Christ has been alive and well since the beginning of time. Anti-Christ in his spirit has stood behind pulpits in churches. And if you think it's just by chance, you're fooling yourself. 
Antichrist have stood in churches and led people astray intentionally. Not because of their own ignorance. Intentionally. As a result of what? Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. It's not a coincidence. So the whole house of Jacob, we're told, shall possess their God-given, divinely purchased, rightful possessions. Jacob will be a fire, but Esau will be stubble. Ultimately, there's a reference to that also made in Psalm 137. Let's turn there quickly. This is part of the prophecy of what's being mentioned here. Psalm 137, and notice the language that's being used. This is in most Bibles has a heading on it, and the heading says the songs of Zion. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed... Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Listen, understand something. In every kingdom of this world, according to now what I want you to see in Revelation chapter 11, every kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God. Folks, I want you to, I want you to take heart in that statement. Every kingdom in this world will become the kingdom of God. I know it is so hard for our finite minds to realize and think of a time when Jesus Christ will fully be on, the, on display. When Christ's glory will be everywhere that we see. When we read about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, we read about these things and we think about, we're excited about the idea of newness, but please don't lose sight of reality. The greatest joy is not the newness, it's the glory of Jesus Christ being fully seen and holiness will now be reigning everywhere. We're not going to be having conversations about what wickedness can, man, can sinners think up now. We're not going to have to worry about mankind and his sin trying to redefine marriage and redefine when life begins. Christ is going to make everything right. Folks, if you read these Old Testament prophecies and you just stay on the intellectual level and you don't see Christ in the Scriptures in every book of the Bible, your Bible knowledge, you are not going to find comfort in anything. All you're going to find is that it seems like God was angry in the Old Testament. If you think God is angry in the Old Testament in the, in the sense of human anger, you don't know God. God does not act on his emotions like we do. He's not moody <laughs> like every one of us are, right? Every one of us, we react with our emotions. 
He didn't react with emotion towards Jacob. He didn't react with emotion towards Esau. He didn't pour out judgment out of emotion. He did according to his declared purposes and his own counsel. What God is doing is not by coincidence. What God is doing is with intent. Revelation eleven fifteen says this, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world, here it is, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Remember, the subject we began with, for the Lord has spoken it. What has He spoken? He has spoken the reality and all these things will come true. Our seventh principle today, and we're through. The only hope for the unconverted sinner today is in Christ alone. That's your only hope today. Your hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. It's not found in good moral values. It's not found in being better than your neighbor. It's not being found in being a good example of a father or a mother. And it's not found for our young people. It's not found in being the perfect model child. It's found in the repentance of my own sin my acknowledgement of my failures before Him, to repent and believe that Jesus Christ is my only hope. He is my source of righteousness. I hope this day you can say, listen, I'm, I am by my own free will. Yes, by your own free will, you are choosing today. Again, understand what free will is. God is making you willing in the day of, of belief. Today is that day of belief. Salvation is of the Lord. Call on him this morning. Christ was the object and the message of the book of Obadiah.